Section nine of Old and New Masters by Robert Lind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter five Keats Part two The Matthew Arnold View. Matthew Arnold has often been attacked for his essay on Shelley. His essay on Keats, as a matter of fact, is much less sympathetic and penetrating. Here, more than anywhere else in his work, he seems to be a professor with whiskers, drinking afternoon tea and discoursing on literature to a circle of schoolgirls. It is not that Matthew Arnold underestimated Keats. He is with Shakespeare, he declared, and in another sentence, in what we call natural magic, he ranks with Shakespeare. One may disagree with this, for in natural magic Keats does not rank even with Shelley, and at the same time feel that Matthew Arnold gives Keats too little rather than too much appreciation. He divorced Keats' poetry too gingerly from Keats's life. He did not sufficiently realize the need for understanding all that passion and courage and railing and ecstasy of which the poems are the expression. He was a little shocked. He would have liked to draw a veil. He did not approve of a young man who could make love in language so unlike the measured ardor of one of Miss Austen's heroes. The impression left by the letters to Fanny Braun, he declared, was unpleasing. After quoting one of the letters, he goes on to comment. One is tempted to say that Keats' love letter is the love letter of a surgeon's apprentice. It has, in its relaxed self-abandonment, something underbred and ignoble, as of a youth ill-brought up, without the training which teaches us that we must put some constraint upon our feelings and upon the expression of them. It is the sort of love-letter of a surgeon's apprentice, which one might hear read out in a breach-of-promise case, or in the divorce court. Applied to the letter which Arnold had just quoted, there could not be a more foolish criticism. Keats was dogged by a curious vulgarity, which produced occasional comic effects in his work, but his self-abandonment was not vulgar. It may have been, in a sense, immoral. He was an artist who practiced the philosophy of exquisite moments long before Pater wrote about it. He abandoned himself to the sensations of love and the sensations of an artist like a voluptuary. The best of his work is daydreams of love and art. The degree to which his genius fed itself upon art and daydreams of art is suggested by the fact that the most perfect of his early poems, written at the age of twenty, was the sonnet on Chapman's Homer, and that the most perfect of his later poems was the ode on a Grecian urn. His magic was largely artistic magic, not natural magic. He writes about Pan and the nymphs, but we do not feel that they were shapes of earth and air to him, as they were to Shelley. Rather, they seem like figures copied out of his friend's pictures. Consider, for example, the picture of a nymph who appeared in Endymion. It was a nymph uprising to the breast in the fountain's pebbly margin, and she stood, among lilies like the youngest of her brood. To him her dripping hand she softly kissed, and anxiously began to plait and twist. The gesture of the nymph are as ludicrous as could be found in an academy or salon picture, Keats' human or quasi-human beings are seldom more than decorations, but this is a commonplace decoration. The figures in the Eve of St. Agnes and the later narratives are a part of the general beauty of the poems, but even there 
they are made as it were to match the furniture it is the same in all his best poems keats's imagination lived in castles and he loved the properties and the men and women were among the properties we may forget the names of porphyro and madeline but we do not forget the background of casement and arras and golden dishes and beautiful sensual things against which we see them charming figures of lovesickness similarly in lamia we may remember the name of the serpent woman's lover with difficulty but who can forget the colors of her serpent skin or the furnishing of her couch and of her palace in corinth that purple-lined palace of sweet sin in keats every palace has a purple lining so much may be said in definition of keats genius it was essentially an aesthetic genius it anticipated both william morris and oscar wilde there is in keats a passion for the luxury of the world such as we do not find in wordsworth or shelley he had not that bird-like quality of song which they had that happiness to be alive and singing between the sky and the green earth he looked on beautiful things with the intense devotion of the temple worshipper rather than with the winged pleasure of the great poets he was lovesick for beauty as porphyro for madeline his attitude to beauty the secret and immortal beauty is one of love shackled with vain loving it is a desire of an almost bodily kind keats work indeed is in large measure simply the beautiful expression of bodily desire or of something of the same nature as bodily desire his conception of love was almost entirely physical he was greedy for it to the point of green sickness his intuition told him that passion so entirely physical had in it something fatal love in his poems is poisonous and secret in its beauty it is passion for a lamia for la belle dame sans mercy keats ecstasies were swooning ecstasies they lacked joy it is not only in the ode to a nightingale that he seems to praise death more than life this was temperamental with him he felt the cursed spite of things as melancholily as hamlet did he was able to dream a world nearer his happiness than this world of dependence and church bells and literary jabberers and he could come to no terms except with his fancy i do not mean to suggest that he despised the beauty of the earth rather he filled his eyes with it hill flowers running wild in pink and purple checker and up piled the cloudy rack slow journeying in the west like herded elephants but the simple pleasure in colors and shapes grows less in his later poems it becomes overcast his great poems have the intensity and sorrow of a farewell it would be absurd however to paint keats as a man without vitality without pugnacity without merriment his brother declared that john was the very soul of manliness and courage and as much like the holy ghost as johnny keats the johnny keats who had allowed himself to be snuffed out by an article as a schoolboy he had been fond of fighting and as a man he had his share of militancy he had a quite healthy sense of humor too not a subtle sense but at least sufficient to enable him to regard his work playfully at times as when he commented on an early version of la belle dame sans mercy containing the lines and there i shut her wild wild eyes with kisses four why four kisses he writes to his brother why four kisses you will say why four because i wish to restrain the headlong impetuosity of my muse she would have fain said score without hurting the rhyme but we must temper the imagination as the critics say with judgment 
I was obliged to choose an even number that both eyes might have fair play, and to speak truly, I think, two apiece quite sufficient. Suppose I had said seven, there would have been three and a half apiece, a very awkward affair, and well got out of on my side. That was written nearly a year after the famous quarterly article on Endymion, in which the reviewer had so severely taken to task Mr. Keats, if that be his real name, for we almost doubt that any man in his senses would put his real name to such a rhapsody. It suggests that Keats retained at least a certain share of good spirits, in spite of the quarterly, and Fanny Braun and the approach of death. His observation, too, was often that of a spirited common-sense realist, rather than an aesthete, as in his first description of Fanny Braun. She is about my height, with a fine style and countenance of the lengthened sort. She wants sentiment in every feature. She manages to make her hair look well. Her nostrils are fine, though a little painful. Her mouth is bad and good. Her profile is better than her full face, which indeed is not full but pale and thin, without showing any bone. Her shape is very graceful, and so are her movements. Her arms are good. Her hands baddish. Her feet tolerable. She is not seventeen. Nineteen but she is ignorant, monstrous in her behavior, flying out in all directions, calling people such names that I was forced lately to make use of the term minx. This is, I think, not from any innate vice, but from a penchant she has of acting stylishly. I am, however, tired of such style, and shall decline any more of it. Yet, before many months, he was writing to the minx. I will imagine you Venus to-night, and pray, 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 pray to your style like a heathen, Certain it is, as I have already said, that it was after his meeting with Fanny Braun that he grew, as in a night, into a great poet. Let us not, then, abuse Keats' passion for her as vulgar, and let us not attempt to make up for this by ranking him with Shakespeare. He is great among the second, not among the first poets. End of section 9 Recording by Amy Graymore